Well, heading into this weekend, we heard of an arrest in a story that we had talked about on this show already. That was the killings, the murders of those four University of Idaho students back in November. It was a real mystery, and there was so much speculation, fear, concern in that little uh, university town of Moscow, Idaho, which is not too, too far from the Washington state border. Well, it turns out the person they arrested was in Pennsylvania, which is a long way from Idaho. 28-year-old Brian Koberger was uh, charged with first or will be charged with first-degree murder uh, by state police, where he was arrested in eastern Pennsylvania. He's the lone suspect in the deaths of those four students, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Morgan, and Zaina Carnado. Uh, here is Moscow, Idaho Police Chief James Fry announcing the arrest. Last night, in conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, on a warrant for murder of Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. Now, Koberger didn't show any emotion today when he appeared in court. He waived any opposition to an extradition from Pennsylvania to Idaho to face those charges. We don't know a whole lot about what the evidence is here because it is still sealed until he, in fact, appears. And we may learn more. But law enforcement sources have said the DNA evidence found at the murder scene was vital in tracking down Koberger. They haven't found a murder weapon. Uh, investigators also uh, searched across the U.S. for a white Hyundai Elantra spotted near the murder house. They apparently came up with a list of 22,000 possible matches before finally narrowing it down to Koberger's vehicle. He had been working as a teaching assistant in criminology, of all things, uh, at the University of Washington, or Washington State University, rather, uh, their campus not too far from Moscow, Idaho. Here is the father of Kaylee Gonsalves speaking to Good Morning America today. It definitely provided relief for uh, our family. Um, we learned uh, later at night around 1030, and um, it felt like a cloud was lifted off of us. I mean, it's like seeing sunlight after you've been stuck in a house for a month. So it definitely provided relief and comfort to know that things were progressing and uh, all this torture of waiting was had a purpose and a meaning. And... Um, it, it, it was very, and it was right before her celebration of life. So that also added to, you know, knowing that millions of people have had prayers for us. And in a bad case, in a bad situation, this is one of the best ways that we could have learned. Well, joining me now is Joseph Giacalone. He's a professor at the John Jay School of Criminal Justice. He's a retired NYPD sergeant and author of the Criminal Investigative Function. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. We followed this case a little bit. Again, geographically, Idaho is, is pretty close, obviously, to uh, to British Columbia. Uh, Washington State is as well. Uh, we followed this one. This was quite the mystery. And then the way that the the arrest was announced was also, they caught a lot of people off guard, just given that the suspect was all the way across the country in Pennsylvania. How did they track down a suspect in this one? Well, we're still waiting to see the probable cause affidavit, right? So what led, what evidence led the police to go to the courts, establish probable cause to get the warrant? So we need a warrant for a couple of things. We need to make an arrest. We need to get it for an arrest warrant. We need it for a search warrant. So that's the level of proof that you need to have. It's about the third uh, level of proof that you're, you're dealing with here. So we really don't know for sure. I mean, there have been things leaked out about forensic genealogy and, and, and the like. Well, I mean, I would imagine there was a lot of DNA evidence recovered from the house. 
I also imagine they said that I think up, upwards of 300 interviews that were conducted, couple that with, I think, 20,000 tips. We have a variety of in- intelligence and evidence, I think, that came in, video surveillance, internet records, phone records. I mean, this one is going to run the gamut, and, and it's going to be, I think it's going to be an eye-opener tomorrow when we actually hear what, what they have. Yeah, because he, uh, today, the suspect, did not oppose his his extradition to Idaho. How does that work? in the U.S. if you're arrested in Pennsylvania, but your charges are in another state? So we have an extradition rule, right? So you can't go into another state and pull somebody out and bring them back to your state. If you're law enforcement, right, that'd be kidnapping. So we have to, if you get arrested in another state, so what happens is in order for that police department, so in this case, Pennsylvania, in order to make the arrest, they have to get an arrest warrant from Idaho court. Now, American police, we need a couple of things to do what they did. So they came in in the middle of the uh, the morning, right? the early morning hours, I think it was like 3 a.m. They need to obtain what's called a no-knock warrant and a nighttime endorsement. Those are two different things, and they don't normally come because the rules here are pretty much basic, that a search warrant can only be conducted between the hours of 6 a.m. in the morning and 9 p.m. at night. But the problem with that is there are people home, kids could be up, so it's kind of dangerous if the person has a chance of maybe destroying evidence or fighting or what have you. So they go for a, a no-knock warrant for, for that element of surprise, and they get a nighttime endorsement because think about this. We've all been awoke, uh, awakened at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you don't even know where you are at the moment. And that's the kind of condition that we want to get people in when we when we bust through the door. Tell me a bit about the suspect, Brian Koberger, because uh, clearly geographically the, he wasn't far away, but he's uh, he's a criminology student. He studied with some pretty well-known names in the criminology business. What does that uh, tell you about him? From a professor point of view and, and an author of a textbook on criminal investigations, right, this is something that you are concerned about, but it's pretty rare. Uh, the only one other case I can think of where somebody who was studying this was actually here in New York City where we had a criminalist that was a graduate of John Jay and working in for the NYPD, and her boyfriend was John Jay student also. And when he murdered her, he tried to stage the crime scene and other things that he probably picked up here or there from his classes. It's something that you are concerned about, but it is so rare. Uh, you know, I mean, I know people brought up Ted Bundy was the same thing, right? He was, he was going to law school and doing all these other things. So. There have been a few cases, but uh, this is something that I wouldn't, uh, I'm not going to lose sleep over when I teach my classes, that's for sure. Criminology here in the United States is pretty narrowly focused, right? It's about the criminal mind. It's about psychology and sociology. Unless under the undergraduate level, he experienced uh, what we call electives, which is classes you could take uh, that you really want to take. I mean, uh, he could have been exposed to forensics or criminal investigation. But if he is as into this as he, you know, looks to be, meaning PhD program, he could have done all this on his own. We don't know. I guess we'll find out. Uh, we don't know yet if or, or what link there was potentially between the suspect and the four victims. No, we, we don't have a motive yet. We don't know what the link is yet. Uh, we don't know how they actually came upon him, per se, as the, the suspect that got the arrest warrant. Like I said earlier, I assume that it was based on maybe an interview with one of the other kids, maybe from one of the other fraternities about these parties and says, hey, you know, we have this older guy that comes every now and then. He drives a white car. You know, when that white car came out on the news, I think that that's when they finally got uh, the piece that they were looking for. From your policing days, this one looked, I mean, it, it. There was an arrest made relatively quickly, considering what a mystery it seemed to be from the outset. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but but it it looked like a tough case because they didn't have a weapon. They still don't have a weapon, right? Um, and they really didn't have any idea what had happened. I was very concerned about a couple of things uh, going forward, but I did support the cops throughout the whole thing. And as a matter of fact, I did an interview like the day or two before uh, for another network, and I said that they had suspects. And people said, well, how did you know that? The chief did an interview the day before, and he was like sitting back in his chair, and he was leaning back, and he didn't have any stress on his face. And I said, that is a man that has a suspect, uh, you know, ready to be arrested. Uh, he didn't look like he was, uh, you know, too concerned at that point. But, yeah, things look pretty grim. But the police keep this kind of information close to the vest. They didn't show their cards. They didn't, uh, you know, put out too much information that was would be detrimental to the investigation or at the at the at the worst, you know, tip off the killer so that he can get rid of evidence like the knife and the clothes. You know, we, we got the car. Right. So that's a big one. But I'd still like to see them get the knife and the car. So, for instance, we have what's called the extended crime scene. And and you have you have a short one and you have a really big one. Right. So you have where the murders happened to back to his house in Pullman, which I think they say is about eight or nine miles. So that entire route by now should have been searched. And they probably looked for anything that may have been thrown out the window. You know, he could have tossed a knife easily out the window if, if that was the case. But also at his complex video surveillance, do we have video of him, you know, parking the car, getting out of the car? What did he look like? And then, of course, you have the, the trip from Idaho, uh, you know, from Washington State, excuse me, to Pennsylvania. So that's a real long crime scene. And they'll probably be taking a look at some of the rest stops along the way. One of the things that struck me about this investigation is just the sheer amount of speculation and rumor that was swirling around that town. This must have been a really difficult one, as you mentioned uh, just before the break. This was a difficult one for the police not to say anything, and yet they seem to have managed to uh, to handle both the pressure and all the innuendo uh, and, and continue on with their work. No, I think so far this has been the largest influence I have seen come from the true true crime community so far to date, right? So we've seen this happen with a few things. So we had like the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp case, right? There was a lot of social media stuff for that just because they were famous people. But this one here really took on a new meaning about uh, involvement by the general public or what we refer to as armchair detectives. Many of them in the, in the community, you know, wished to do good, right? So they were trying to find things out and links. But there was a number of them that did things that were, were counterproductive, let's put it that way. So there was a, somebody had made a a video uh, uh, and put it on the internet about a scream that was heard and, you know, and it ended up all being false. So we saw some good, we saw a lot of bad, but yes, the speculation and the outright beating up of law enforcement in this case was just uh, unprecedented. And, and I, I'll tell you, I gave the chief of Moscow police department, all the credit in the world that he kept a, a stiff upper lip, didn't get hooked kind of thing. Cause you gotta remember, not only did you have the Moscow police department, but the state police and the FBI and they were dragging everybody through the mud. They don't know what they're doing. They, you know, and everybody had this thing figured out, and everybody uh, knew who the killer was. And then, and then, boom! Somebody totally different off the radar. Nobody had him on their list, and nobody even had a clue about what was going on. So, yeah. there was a lot of what they say, crow. Yeah, all day. the speculation proved to be incredibly wrong. That was the uh, it was the interesting part of it. Tell me a bit about this uh, about the genealogy aspect of this because that's been mentioned. You mentioned it earlier in terms of how they may have tracked him down. Um, the suspect was through was you know through this sort of DNA, this mitochondrial DNA that we see used in sort of these um, ancestry sites. We've seen it used in other big profile cases uh, mm-hmm. of late as well. 
Well, yeah, we don't know exactly for sure if it was done, but just quickly, uh, it is derived from mitochondrial. I always tell my students, like, just remember, M for mitochondrial, mom. It's derived from mom, right? Because you have nuclear DNA, which comes from both parents. So mitochondrial DNA is usually just a partial part of the DNA uh, chromosome that they can use to try to track somebody down. It's it's a real uh, interesting time for forensic genealogy and to help solve you know, murder cases and specifically now cold cases down the road because it opens up a whole new avenue of being, of being able to identify people when you really had not much to go on. So it is kind of exciting in that in that aspect. But I would expect we'll see a lot, and you mentioned the affidavit, we're expecting to see as, as soon as he appears in an Idaho courtroom, that we will probably see a lot more than just DNA, because you I think I saw something you mentioned in another interview that, you know, just given the amount of traffic there must have been in that house, that, you know, there could be easily easy answers to why someone's DNA might be there. But oh, um, God, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll need more, we'll probably be seeing more evidence soon as to what, if any connection there was between them and what may have happened that night. Well, yes, and the, here's where the specific DNA might have been coming from, right? So when you have a violent attack like this, an up-close and personal attack where you're right on top of people, specifically with a knife, the, the possibility of, of the victim defending themselves, which we know at least one or two of them did, and then we know that they made a specific statement about that the hands were bagged, right? So the hands were bagged in, in brown paper to help secure any DNA evidence that might be stuck under the fingernails. So that would be another interesting aspect of this case if that's where the DNA came from, because you're dealing with a college house. You have instances where they, they showed videos where the cops are showing up at these parties and the people who live there aren't even there. So if you put a, you know, a luminol in that place and a blue light, it would look like the Milky Way, probably. So you really have a problem when you're, when you're trying to extract DNA from, from, a, from a situation like this because of all the mixtures that are in there. So it would have to be specific from one of the victims, in my, in my opinion. Uh, now, he's, uh, of course, uh, said he's not guilty. I imagine he'll be pleading not guilty. Uh, how difficult a case do you think this will be? Well, uh, you know, it's it's not unusual that somebody say I didn't do it, right? I'm not guilty, so uh, that's we're not a big surprise there. I mean, him not fighting extradition is big too, because the extradition part is just saying that I'm not the guy. But he did make another statement today, which I thought might hurt him in the long run. He said that he doesn't have any mental illness. I'm sure his attorney that's waiting for him in in Idaho is not happy about that statement. Joseph Cialone, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben.